right, Two Cities Church, my name's Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're watching online or in the lobby or you're in this room, we're glad you're here. One thing that we say all the time is that the week is as important as the weekend. Now, I love the weekend. I love Sundays. I love services. I love sermons. But we really believe here that the week, the other 167 hours of your week is as important, maybe you could argue more important than this one hour. And so what we try to do and what we're trying to get better at is in every series, here's what we say kind of behind the scenes, and I kind of occasionally try to tell you what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, We always say we don't announce things, we launch them. We don't just, hey guys, we're having a series in 2 Timothy. No, we're launching it. It's got a whole series with it. It's got a bumper with it. And it's got a resource that we're giving you. So I want to let you know, many of you got this last week. There's going to be more of these at the welcome tent. Uh, You can also download uh, this uh, as a PDF at our website. Here's what we're trying to do. We are trying to help you guys. It's really going to be up to you, right? Uh, But we're trying to help you guys go further, faster in every area of your lives, especially your spiritual lives. We're trying to come alongside you. And and here, we're not trying to give you more rules. We're always trying to give you more tools, okay? So this is going to be a resource because what you need, if you're going to grow spiritually, is you need resources and relationships. Resources and relationships. Uh, So we are in this series on 2 Timothy. If you'll type to, if you'll turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 8 to 18. We're going to cover all of it today, but we're going to be particularly in verse 8. Now, let me just remind you what's going on. Paul, it's his final letter. He's the most famous church planter, and you could probably argue the most famous apostle ever. He's writing to his favorite person, and Paul knows he's about to die. And, and, and Timothy is in Ephesus. Now, Timothy, we think, is somewhere between 35 and 40 years old. He's pastoring in an influential city. Most likely, he's the only church in that city. He's in the city of Ephesus. It would be a lot like Winston-Salem. It had a lot of old religion and a lot of new religion, right? Old religion, 5th Street. New religion, Trade Street. (laughs) That's a good way to think about it, right? So there are two ways that people run away from God. They try to do it religiously. They try to do it rebelliously. And so what what Paul's doing is he's getting Timothy ready. And Timothy's scared. We talked about it last week. He's getting Timothy ready to continue to be under the word, around God's people, and on God's mission. That's a good way to think about the Christian life. We're under the word of God. We're not over it. We're not judging it. We're not beside it. We're under it. So when when we read the Bible, and hopefully you'll feel this here, we're not trying to edit the Bible. We're trying to change our minds. If If we bump into something that we disagree with or is different than our culture, we don't go, I need to edit the Bible. We go, I need to change my mind. I need to change my heart. I need to change my life. We're under the word. We are around God's people. We are, you are needy and needed. And we believe that. And one of our deep values here is to connect you to relationships, to meaningful Christian relationships. And so we're, we are under the word, we're around God's people, and what Paul's passion is, is we've got to be on God's mission. We have the greatest message in the history of the world, and we want to get that message to as many people as possible. So if you'll turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1, I want you to see how Paul is going to motivate Timothy against mission drift. Do you know what mission drift is? I mean, you can probably, if you've never heard that phrase, a family can have mission drift, an organization can have mission drift, a business can have mission drift. If you're struggling in your marriage, usually it's a mission drift problem, right? You're like, well, we kind of said we were gonna be committed and you, know, you said you were gonna serve me and I said I was gonna serve you and we, we just, we, I said I was gonna pursue you, I said I was gonna date you. Life got busy and there was mission drift, right? Your gym membership, mission drift, come on. The Bible says confess your sins. Mission drift, right? 
You said you were going to do something. You maybe even planned that you were going to do something, and then there's mission drift. And we understand why mission drift happens. Mission drift happens for so many reasons, I can't even explain it to you. Mission drift happens because you start making money. Mission drift happens because you don't make enough money. Mission drift happens because you're, you enter a new stage of life, right? I mean, how many of you, you're like, I was passionate about Christ in elementary school. <laughs> or maybe I was in high school. Or maybe for, for, for some of you, right, college. And then something happened in your single years or in your marriage. Or, or some of you, right, you have a kid and it's like we don't see you for 18 months. You hide and you hibernate. And you're completely off mission. You're, you don't have a Christ-centered home. You have a child-centered home. And 18 months is just enough time for you to get pregnant again. So we don't see you for three years. Depending on how many kids is how many 18-month periods we don't see you for. And then you say things like, well, we're just focusing on our family, which means I'm not going to be missional for about 20 years. The whole time my kids are in the house. And so we have mission drift. And Paul is going to push us forward and say, you've got to stay under the word of God. You've got to stay around God's people. You've got to stay on God's mission. And it's going to be really, really hard because people are going to believe and people are going to behave very differently than you. And I don't like being around people who believe differently than me. Do you? I don't. It's kind of overwhelming. By the way, they say there's kind of mainly two transitions that happen in a person's life. The first transition is I, uh, <laughs> other people think different than my parents. That begins to happen in elementary school, right? Someone will come up to you and, hey, you know, Johnny's got an iPad. Johnny's allowed to watch that show. It's like, uh, I'm not Johnny's parents, <laughs> right? So we think, then the second phase, and this is what happens in middle school, is I think different than my parents. And that's an interesting stage for a middle school or in a high school. I think differently than my parents. Nobody likes to think differently than the people that are around them. It's overwhelming. Because then it makes you think, well, maybe I'm wrong. Right? And especially if you're a minority. It's like, like what I mean by that minority in what you believe. It's like, okay, if everybody else believes something different than me, the chance that I'm wrong is probably 100%. <laughs> that should be normally how I feel. And so with all of that, you've got to remember Christianity is a small minority. There's a small church in a big city called Ephesus. And everybody around them is believing and behaving differently. And last week, Paul says, I don't want you to be afraid. Don't fear. This week, we're going to spend a lot of time just in verse 8. I want you to see what he says here. He says this, therefore, verse 8, therefore, do not be ashamed. We're going to talk about shame today. He says, do not be ashamed of the testimony, that's the gospel, the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Remember, Paul's in prison nor of me, his prisoner, but instead, share in suffering. I don't want you to be a masochist, Timothy, but I want you to embrace, and maybe in some ways, invite the necessary suffering into your life. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So I want to talk about fear and shame. So fear is more general. We talked about it last week. I'm not going to go back into all the details of it. Shame is much more, shame has to do with community. Shame has to do with other people. This is why, you know, um, because America has been historically very individualistic as a society, we have not been considered a shame and honor culture. A shame and honor culture. So give me, let me give you an example. China is a shame and honor culture. Here's why. The more communal a culture is, the more likely you are to feel shame in that culture. I was talking to someone this week, and they said, you know what? Small 
southern towns have an honor-shame culture because everybody knows everybody. Everybody's watching everybody. Everybody's judging everybody. Everybody feels connected to their family and their grandparents. Nobody wants to upset anybody, right? It's it's an honor-shame culture. Shame has to do with, you can feel shame for multiple reasons. Shame, shame sometimes shows up in being very insecure, right? And some of you, I mean, I, you know, some of you are very insecure. We can tell by the guys you date, right? Some of you, we can tell, we can look at you in the way that you walk, in the way that you carry yourself. We can see it in the car that you have to drive, in the way, you know, the way that you talk about yourself. It's like you're telling on yourself all the time. You're insecure. And what Paul wants to do is he wants to root our security not in our financial status, not in our looks, not in our relationships, but in something much deeper in the gospel. This is important because now what what people are telling us, because this is interesting, follow me here for a second, because we're more connected through the internet and through social media, we're becoming not a shame honor culture, but what people call a shame fame culture or a fame-shame culture, right? We're super connected. I mean, it's unbelievable to me that people can have 10,000 or 20,000 or 100,000 or 1 million followers. I mean, that's a, so, so when you see John uh, Cena, when you see John Cena, if you don't know who he is, the pro wrestler, when he has to get in front of a video camera and apologize to China in Mandarin, for saying Taiwan is a country. It is a country. <laughs> goofy. And it's not a theological word, but goofy. <laughs> but that's what people have to do. I will bow. Because I have fame and I don't need any shame. And cancel culture happens in a shame-fame culture. So what you're going to see is this is incredibly relevant to our lives. And if you look here, he says we should not be ashamed. Now, here's what's interesting. In our society today, and by the way, this is how I read the Bible. Whenever I read the Bible, I assume we're doing the opposite. (laughs) So in our society today, what's happening is we are ashamed of what we shouldn't be ashamed of, Christ. And we are not ashamed of what we should be ashamed of. So think about it. What's the opposite of shame? Pride or celebration. To be public and proud about something. Do you know what this month is? Uh-oh, we're talking about it. It's interesting because the, we don't make the Bible relevant. We show the relevancy of the Bible. So we are literally in Pride Month. We believe here that all sex outside of heterosexual marriage is sinful. That's my answer to every question. What about pornography? What about friends with benefits? What about homosexuality? What about promiscuity? I can't say that word. <laughs> what about fornication? Yes, all sex outside of heterosexual marriage is sinful. We live in a society that celebrates sin. We have parades for things we should have funerals for. And what's interesting, it's not just that. I don't mean that that's the most, it's so obvious. Your Zillow app has a, has a rainbow flag. It's like, it's so obvious. But we gotta talk about other ones. It's like, okay, well, you know, the, the person who brags about cheating on their taxes. They're boasting on what they should be ashamed of. The person who brags about how much they drink. The movement that is less popular now, but the shout your abortion movement. 
right? And if you ever want to know why do people get so loud about their sin, it's because they need, and why do they want you to approve of it? It's because internally they're dying inside. They know it's wrong. Give me a law. Give me a law that says it's okay, please. Can everybody walk in this parade with me and say that I'm okay? Because my conscience is condemning me. So anyway, so we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel, but we should be ashamed of our sin, and we need to go to Christ with it. So what are we ashamed of? Look, look what he says in the text. If you look at verse 8, he says, Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner. And look, there's three things that we're going to be ashamed of. I'm uniquely talking about Christians. And Christians, you know, I, I just feel like I picked on the world. Let me just pick on the church. I mean, Christians are, again, not a theological word, but goofy about some things. Some of you are ashamed of Christ, but you're completely unashamed of your secondary hobby horses and pet projects. And you're doing it on Facebook and you're scaring us. And we love you. So what, what, we shouldn't be ashamed of three things, Christ, his word, and his people. That's it. Right, Mark 8.38, if you look at this on the screen, if you'll put it on the screen, Mark 8.38. Whoever is ashamed of me, and, this is Jesus speaking, and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the son of man be ashamed. So Jesus actually says, there's gonna be the temptation to be ashamed of me or to be ashamed of my words. Now let's talk about it. If you, I don't know your environment, say you're at work or say you're in your neighborhood. If you just say something like this, yeah, you know, I, I just thank God for the day. It's like, well, that, you know, you, you mentioned God. You mentioned a higher power. You, you know, something like that. Probably, I mean, unless you're dealing, and we do deal with some very, 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 very sensitive people. But unless you're dealing with somebody who's super sensitive, or may I dare say overly sensitive, they're going to be fine with that. It's as soon as you say Jesus Christ. As soon as you say God's not a force, he has a face. God's not nebulous, he's got a name. And you say his name. I mean, you, you can actually feel it. Jesus Christ, just know this, and you do know this, he's the most loved and he's the most hated person in all of human history. And it's not new with, with 21st century North Carolinians. This is how it's always been. They, they've always, it's always been shameful how he died. Just so you know, the crucifixion was done completely naked. That was to humiliate you. So we say we follow a guy uh, who was a criminal, this is how the world would view it, or at least who suffered a criminal's death. In fact, the earliest drawing that we have of a crucifixion, it dates back to about 200. It's found in a cave. You can Google this later. And in the first drawing that we have of a crucifixion, it's a guy crucified where, with a donkey's head. And it says underneath it, this man, it's, again, it's guys worshiping him. It says, this man worships God. It was mocking Christianity way back in the 200s saying, we can't believe that you would worship some crucified guy. Or you talk today, it's like, you know, you go to the religious studies department at some school, it doesn't really matter where. And they're gonna say something silly like to you like this. Oh, Christianity's so primitive. It's so bloody. It's got sacrifice at the center of it. It's got God punishing his own son. It's so archaic. It's like that message has always been offensive until the Holy Spirit applies it to your life. And you say, oh, I can't believe Christ died for me. So he said, look, it's, you're always, the temptation to be ashamed of Christ is, is a big deal. How about this? Secondly, the temptation to be ashamed of his words. It's like, well, it's like, how much time do we have? Let's just talk about some of the things Jesus said. He talked about heaven and hell. He talked about hell more than anybody else. It's like, what do people believe about heaven today? 
Two options for Americans to believe about heaven. It doesn't exist, or if it does, we're all going there. Well, that's convenient. It doesn't exist, but if it does, we're all going there. It's like, well, Christians go, listen, it doesn't go well for everybody forever. I don't know how else to say it. Uh, You know, I'm not gonna keep talking about sexuality, but that's a huge issue. Uh, Gender's a huge issue. The exclusivity of Christ. That, by that we mean that every person must place conscious, saving faith in Jesus Christ. The idea that tolerance is not the main virtue, that the, Bible's, the main virtue of the Bible is the exact opposite of tolerance. Tolerance is you're okay, I'm okay, let's all just try to live together and act like nothing's wrong. Repentance is you're definitely not okay, I'm definitely not okay, we all need to repent immediately. And so, of course, all of this is, it's like no wonder we're ashamed if we don't have the spirit of God and the power of God in our lives. And then the third thing, so he says, look, don't be, look, he says right in verse eight, don't be ashamed of the testimony. What's the testimony? The life and the words of Jesus Christ. You can't divide the two. And then he says, okay, and don't be ashamed of me. It's like, well, Paul, you're in prison. It's kind of embarrassing. Your back's all beaten up. You're poor. I mean, everybody thinks that you're a false, there's a lot of people who think you're a false prophet. The Jews don't like you. You keep writing all of these letters. It's embarrassing. There's a temptation for Christians to be ashamed of other Christians. How, how do you do the opposite of that? Well, we're doing it right now, those of us who are here. What you do, part of what you do when you say, look, I'm, I'm actually going to connect my life to other Christians. I'm gonna be a public Christian. This is why, you know, church attendance is so important. It's like it's important because it's like it's the weekly reminder in your life that you're connected to the people of God. And he says, don't be ashamed. Now, he tells us why we're going to be ashamed. The the rest of the chapter is basically why are we going to be ashamed and how do we fight against being ashamed and the mission drift that comes from it. So look right there in verse eight again. He says, he says don't be ashamed of the testimony. He says, so, so here's the number one reason we're ashamed of, of Christianity. We think it's about us. We think, well, more than that, we think life's about us. Look, he says, it's, it, the testimony of our Lord means Christianity's not about you ultimately. The gospel's not about you ultimately. This is about Christ. And if you look, what he's going to do in verses nine and 10 is he's going to take us very, very deep, especially in verse nine. We're gonna read verses nine and 10 in a minute. And we're gonna dive deep into what the scripture says. And what you're going to see, is, and this is a good thing to know, that when you're suffering, and, and Timothy's suffering, we don't know all the, he's got opposition, he's got opponents, he's facing potential prison time. Um, he's got lots of people in his city don't, that don't like him. He's got difficult church members. He's got all of that. And so, well, what do you do when things get darker? you have to go deeper. This is interesting. So so Paul is going to write one of the deepest things in all of 2 Timothy is verse 9 and verse 10. He's going to remind him of going deeper into the gospel. And what's very, very interesting, as they, and I saw a study on this, as they're surveying pastors and churches during the pandemic, what they're finding is that this, because of COVID and all that, you know, all, all the fear that was associated with it and everything, that churches, church members are now telling their pastors, we'd like to go deeper. No more topical sermons, please. We would like to go verse by verse, line by line. Uh, We would actually like longer sermons. We would actually like you to deal with more difficult uh, topics. And to all of this, we say amen, okay? Uh, But what I want you to see is in verse nine, we're gonna see a a deep dive into the gospel. In verse nine, look at me there. 
Here's what it says. So going back to the gospel, he says this, talking about Christ. We're talking about God. Who saved us. God saved us. And he called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So I want you to look at verse nine. Well, let's do it this way. Verse nine is the gospel in the past. Verse 10 is the gospel in the present. Verse nine, if you write in your Bible, is the gospel in eternity. Verse 10 is the gospel in history. So let's look, look. we saw verse nine. That was all about the past, what God did in the past. Now we're gonna look at what God's doing in the present. Verse 10, and, and which now has been manifested, that means made visible or made known, and now has been made manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So let's go back to verse nine. I, I wanna talk about what, what did God do in eternity and what did God do in history? What did God do in the past and what did God do in the present? And this is interesting. It's like, well, what, what do you need when you're suffering? Well, you need a purpose. That's actually, that's actually what you need. We, we know this, that life is way too difficult. You're, I mean, I tell you this all the time. You're going to get old and it's going to be hard. And everybody that you know and love will die. And lots of very unjust and unfair things are going to happen in your life and you're not going to like it. And there are many dark times ahead over the next decades in your life. That's just, and every time I say it, if you think about it, you know that it's true. Well, then what do you need to sustain you through all of the dark times in your life? You need a purpose. You need a purpose that says, oh, God's doing something in this. This is worth suffering for. So he says this, he says, okay, for, okay. So he says, God saved us and he called us. Look at the end of verse nine, before the ages began. Okay, God is, you, you, know, you know these things, but just think about them for a second because they're worth thinking about. Okay, God did all of these things for us before the ages began. That's another way to say before time began. That, you know, before there was creation, God was planning your salvation. And that should boggle and blow our minds. It's like this, this thing that we're a part of called Christianity, called the mission of God, called the gospel, this is way before 1980 when you were born. This is way before 2,000 years ago when Christ came and lived and died and rose again. This goes way back into the mind and heart of God in eternity. Now, whenever you teach this, look at verse 9. You know, people ask questions and it's, you know, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, all of that, which if we had more time, we could go into that. But let me even just say that's actually not... It's fine to debate and discuss, okay, um, and dialogue about those issues. But that's not the purpose of verse 9. The purpose of verse 9 is to comfort us, to say, you are so secure, Timothy, Paul. You're so secure in the midst of a crazy world, in the midst of suffering, because God was planning and designing your salvation in the past. So here, here's how the triune God works together. And there's just certain things that you need to know. You're like, well, how does this affect my life? Well, just think about it for five hours and it might affect your life. That God planned, God the Father 
planned salvation before time existed. This is the gospel. He decided, it like makes you have all these deep thoughts and it's okay, we can think deeply. The problem is most of us aren't deep enough. We're shallow people. And so the first time somebody says something to us, we're too sensitive. We're too easily discouraged. So think about this with me. Before time existed, and he, God knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin, and he created them anyway. Yeah, I don't know how it all works, okay? It hurts my head when I think about it too much. Um, that's not the point. The point is he knew it was gonna happen, and he created the world, and before he created Adam and Eve, he had planned that Jesus Christ would die. It's like, whoa! So God plans or architects salvation, and then Jesus Christ comes in time and space and history, and he accomplishes salvation. Historically, we'll see that in the next verse. And then the Holy Spirit in each generation applies that gospel message to individual sinners who are born again. Does that make sense? That's how the Trinity works together. God planted in eternity past, Christ accomplished it in history, and the Holy Spirit might be applying it to your heart today. And you might for the first time realize Christ died for me. Look at verse 10. It says that Christ appeared, and it says he does two things. He deals with death and he deals with life. So nothing major, just life and death. That's everything. And it's interesting. You think about death. It's like, death. Paul's facing death. You know, all of us are going to die. Most of us spend a lot of time not thinking about death. I have a, a buddy of mine, and he's in the funeral home business. And I was talking to him recently, and I was like, hey, you know, tell me about, you know, what's the funeral home business like? And one of the things he said to me, and I don't know if this is every place, but he said, um, everybody, he said, more and more, you know, everyone's getting cremated. I said, well, tell me, why, why do you think that is? He goes, well, there's many reasons. He said, for a lot of young people, they just don't want to deal with death. And they're cheap, <laughs> both. But, but he said, basically, grandma died. Do you want to have a viewing? No. Do you want to have a funeral? No. Just send me the ashes when it's all done, please. And he said, it's so sad because people, they don't want to deal with death, right? If you've been to a viewing, if you've been to a funeral... I've told you before, I enjoy doing funerals more than I enjoy doing weddings. Because at the wedding, everyone's like, where's the reception? <laughs> you know, and at the funeral, everyone's like, I'm gonna die. I better listen closely. And so what, what he says is that Christ has abolished death. Well, oh, it's like, what does that mean? Because you know, you're gonna still die and I'm gonna still die. Well, th you gotta ask the question, what is death? Well, here's what death is. Death, here's a good way to think about death. Death is about separation. That, that would be a good, if you could have one word to think about death, think about separation. Because what makes death so painful, right? If, you're, if your mom dies, if your brother dies, if your sister dies, if your son dies, if anyone dies that you are close to, what, what is, like, what is the ache? Why does grief come upon you in waves? That's how it comes upon you if someone close to you dies. It comes upon you in waves. And you'll, and, and you'll feel this, they're not here anymore. It's the first, right? That's why the first year of, of when someone dies is always the most painful, usually. It's the first Christmas without them. It's the first Easter without them. It's the first birthday without them. And what you feel is you feel the separation. So that's what death is, it's separation. There are three types of death in the Bible. I know we're going deep today. There are three types of death in the Bible. There is spiritual death, there is physical death, there is eternal death. They're all about separation. Spiritual death is how every person comes into the world. Every person comes into the world physically alive and spiritually dead. Physically alive and spiritually dead. We love our kids' ministry. Most of them physically alive, spiritually dead. What we're hoping and praying for our kids is that they would believe. 
that they would one day be baptized. The con- it's like, this is why, no- this is why you know, you, we go to Wake Forest University. Nobody wants to worship God there. Nobody wants to repent there. Nobody wants to, to follow and submit to the word of God. Why? It's because, well, everybody's spiritually dead. I'm not just picking on weight. That's just one example. Right? I mean, everybody's, it's like nobody seeks God. That's what the Bible says. Here's what that means. Everybody's spiritually dead. Unless the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life and they are born again, born anew, born from above. So there's physical death, or sorry, there's spiritual death. That's the separation of the soul from God. And that's the natural condition of every person apart from the Holy Spirit. Secondly, there's physical death. That's the separation of the soul from the body. You understand that one? This is why the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul says, basically, I'm I'm summarizing here, he didn't want to die. He was saying to live as Christ and to die again. He was willing to, but he said it would actually be better. He said, I don't want to, basically, I don't want to leave my body. It's better because I want to be with the Lord, but I don't want my soul to be separated from my body. He said, I want Christ to return because if Christ returns, then I get the new body immediately. And then I don't, I don't have to be without my body. I love my body. God's going to give us a new body one day. So the saddest part is like that, yes, we're going to be separated from our body. That's what happens at physical death. What, we're, what Christ has avo- helped us avoid is eternal death, or what the, the, the book of Revelation calls the second death. It's the eternal separation from the life of God forever when people are thrown into the lake of fire. So this is all, so here, why is all this important? Because it's like, well, how could you ever be ashamed of somebody who saved you from death? That's the whole idea. It's like, if, here's the problem why we're ashamed, why you're ashamed, why I'm ashamed of Christ in ways I shouldn't be. You don't know him well enough. We don't know him well enough. If you really believe that he did these things, how could you be ashamed of him? Like say you had a great, I'm assuming you do, you have a great son or you've got a great daughter or you've got a great mom, you've got a great dad. Could you imagine being ashamed of them? Your friend, if your friend starts saying something about him, you're like, oh, you don't understand. I got a great mom. You just don't know her. I want to be unashamed. So he says, we, when, when you are, are going to have mission drift, you have to go deeper. Then I want you to see what he says next. Paul basically says that he expects suffering. Look at me at verse 11. In verse 11, he says this. Paul says, for which... I was appointed. Paul's like, look, this was not my idea. I wasn't planning on being a Christian. You know, I mean, that's certainly my story. I was not planning on being a Christian. Um, it, it, Paul says here, uh, for, for which I was appointed, because before he was appointed, he was an accuser. <laughs> before he was a preacher, he was a persecutor. Here she says, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed. That's the main idea in this passage, not being ashamed. But I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Why? For I know what I believe. Nope, that's not what it says. He doesn't say, for I know what I believe. I actually know something deeper than what I know whom. I've got a personal relationship. That's not a throwaway phrase. A, A personal relationship with God. He says this, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So here's what Paul understood. And this is, I'm gonna to try to explain this the best I know how. And I hope that you're gonna to try to believe and embrace this the best that you know how based on scripture. Suffering is the strategy to reach people. That's it. We're not masochists, but that's the strategy. 
You, this is a leadership principle for so many things. You can't go around it. You have to go through it. That's it. Paul says, look, I get it. I'm, a, I, I'm an apostle and I'm a preacher and a teacher, which is basically what every Christian is. Take, take away the office. He had a unique role. But that's the calling of every Christian. What's an apostle? I'm the kind of person who takes the gospel to new people. That's what I do. It's like, well, guess what? Suffering. Now, not the raised fist, the raised eyebrow in America. But we're still so ashamed. Some of you, you just want to be liked so bad. It's such a small goal for your life. But that's it. It's like, I don't have any influence for Christ, but I'd like people to just like me. Paul doesn't even think like that. So he's like, I'm an apostle, and then I'm a preacher. What's a preacher? Somebody who talks about repentance. That's what it is. Uh, that's what it is. I, I'm asking you to respond to what God has said. I'm asking you by the, by the word of God and by the grace of God and by the power of God to change your life. That's what a preacher is, right? We don't even like to talk about preachers anymore. It's like, I'm bringing in a speaker, <laughs> a speaker. <laughs> are you setting up sound, light, and video? What are you talking about? We don't want to use the word preacher, right? Because we have all these connotations and I get it. But preaching is, I'm going to call you to respond to this. And then teaching is, I'm going to teach you all that the Bible says about something. And it's like, well, of course, all of these are highly offensive. And, but, but what Paul says, look, I, I, I get it. I've embraced it. Again, we're not masochists, but I've just embraced that the only way the gospel goes forward is through suffering. It's like, you know, you go all, all, you know, all of the apostles. It's like, you know, an interesting thing you should do sometimes is go Google, where did all the apostles die? And you'll find two interesting things. You'll find that they went all over the world. You'll find, you'll find them all over the world. The second thing that you'll find is that they all died uh, martyrs' deaths, except for John, who was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. But the whole way, it's like, well, how does the gospel break through into the hospital system? There's one answer to that. There's one answer, suffering. That's it. That's it. It's the strategy. It's like, no, I want to make Christianity cool. Nope, doesn't work. It's like there's one strategy, and it's suffering. And we don't go after suffering. We just go after, I'm going to take the gospel to new people. I'm going to call them to respond. I'm going to teach them what the Bible says. I'm going to fully and publicly identify with Jesus Christ. And yes, there's going to be suffering. That when the gospel goes forward, you get opposition and open doors. You get persecution and you get converts. And that's it. And they're usually in equal measure. The people who are most useful for, uh, in the, uh, you know, for the kingdom of God also, often tend to have the same amount of enemies. So Paul says, listen, I get all that. And then Paul gives another directive. If you look, if you look we're kind of covering this whole passage together. <clears throat> Paul gives another direct directive here. I'll, I'll go over this quickly. He says this, follow the pattern of the sound words. So he, he's basically saying, you're going to be ashamed to teach all that the Bible teaches. And what God has given us is a pattern. It means a blueprint. It means a sketch. It means an extensive outline. It means we know the whole design. We don't, have, we don't have every detail, but we know the whole design. So he says, follow the pattern of sound words. That means healthy words. Sound means healthy or whole. Uh, the, the, what does a sick soul need? Healthy doctrine, healthy words. This is why if you ever sit under ideology... And some of you have had to sit, on, you've, sit, you've heard some professor give you ideology. Ideology is low resolution, overly simplified, one-sided teaching. Do you understand that? It's low resolution, it's overly simplified, 
It's one-sided teaching. And when I sit in those environments, I feel sick. It says, you know, God loves you. It's like, that's half the story. The other story is that you're a sinner justly condemned who needs to repent. And when God loves something, he hates it. See, that's the difference. That's sound doctrine. It's we told both sides. And we have to do, we have to do both of that all of the time. That's the, that's the sound pattern. What happens in a society is we get the one-sided, low-resolution, oversimplified teaching, and people get possessed by it. They, 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 it anyway, it, it's, it's super easy answers to very complex problems. That's ideology. And so he says, don't do that. He says, follow the pattern of healthy, whole, sound words that you heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So the pattern points us to a person, Jesus Christ. And then he says, as well, uh, in verse 13, or sorry, verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So he's saying you're going to have to teach and guard doctrine. Um, and you, what do you guard? You guard something that's valuable, right? You don't guard your garbage can, right? It's like you don't care. Take it, right? Take all the garbage in. It's like you only guard that which is valuable. And so it's like, well, what are we guarding it against? Well, oh, I mean, I don't have enough time to get into it all. We're guarding against a lot of different stuff. We're guarding against the distortions of the gospel. We're guarding against it getting watered down. We're guarding against it being taught falsely. And so Paul is just getting, and we'll look at this more in the weeks to come, Paul is getting Timothy ready to fully identify with Jesus Christ, to teach the message and to guard it against all of the enemies. And then Paul is going to end with examples of what it looks like to be ashamed of Christ, his church, his gospel, and what it means to not be ashamed. And so the chapter ends with an illustration of three different men. And I'm going to read this to you, but we need illustrations. You know, a good question to ask yourself is, why do you like to watch movies? And a shallow, surface-level, low-resolution answer to that would be, I like to be entertained. But the real answer to why we watch movies is we want to know how to live our lives. And we don't know how to live our lives. And we need to watch as many movies and read as many books and watch as many shows as possible. And this is why you'll be fascinated with the villain. This is why you'll watch the hero. This is why you'll feel things deeply because you're watching how to live your life. We are all doing this. We have, to, we have to know how to live and we have to know how not to live. We have to have a vision for our life and we have to have a counter vision for our life. We have to have positive examples for our life and we have to have negative examples for our life. And here's what he says. He says in verse 15, you are aware, so Paul's like, here, you wanna know my situation? You're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. It's like, all right, Paul, maybe a little bit hyperbole. Every person in Asia, but Paul, what Paul's basically saying there is every person who knew me, who said they were gonna follow Christ, they've all gone away. It's like, man, this is, you know, you just reminded, ministry's hard. Jesus has 120 people at the end of his ministry. His disciples betrayed, his one disciple betrayed him, the rest of them denied him the night of, of it. They all, you know, let, went their own way. Now they came back. Now we got Paul at the end of Paul's life. He's got a similar thing. He says, you're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. 
And then he says, verse, so he gives two examples. By the way, these are the only two times these men are mentioned in scripture. How'd you like that? <laughs> Here's two guys. They weren't great. They forsook the Lord. End of story. That's it. Verse 16, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. Um, it sounds like a dinosaur, I know. Onesiphorus, okay? Onesiphorus. Uh, uh, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. So he's gonna give one, by the way, as I read this, this is considered by uh, potentially to be the first short-term mission trip in the Bible. So we need to send somebody this is a good reminder that mission trips are not about seeing new locations and seeing new places and traveling. That might be a secondary or tertiary reason. The number one reason that you go on a mission trip is you want to serve and strengthen the missionaries on the field there. So here's what it says. He often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and he found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. What an incredible picture of a godly man. It reminds me, when we, years ago, I went and visited a missionary family in China. Me and three other guys, this was years ago, we went and visited this missionary family in China. And we traveled all of that way, you know, it's, it's like two, two or three planes and, you know, a whole day of traveling. And we get there and they've got uh, three young kids and we're real excited. We're in China. We show up at their apartment and we're like, what can we do for you? And they go, can you watch our kids for two days? We're about to go to the hotel and get away. We've not had a, a, like a, you know, a getaway in a couple you know, years. I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> you know? But I was not excited about being sleep deprived and watching three young kids who were not my own in a country I didn't understand. But we realized, the four of us did, it took us a few minutes, we realized this is it. This is how you serve. I thought we were going to do something really cool. I thought we were going to see the city right away. It's like, no, 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 we are here to serve this family who doesn't get to get away. What, what an incredible picture. You, you, you think about what you have to do. So back then when you're in prison, the only way that you, know, you get food, the only way you get clothing, the only way you get anything, there was no system that provided that for you. You had to have other people bring it to you. You had to have your friends bring it to you in prison, which means the moment that somebody brings Paul something in prison, they're gonna identify that person with Paul. They're gonna identify that person as a Christian. Let me just ask, what does it look like for you this week? I don't know. What does it look like for you to be unashamed of the gospel and to publicly identify with Christ? Let me, let me tell you, I know for some of you it means, and I don't know who's watching online here, some of you it means that you have not yet signed up, but you need to be baptized. You've never been baptized. You saw it today. Every time your wife hits you or your husband hits you and says, it's your, it's your turn. And it's gonna be your way, because what is baptism? I identify with Christ and I identify publicly with his people. What are all the other ways? I don't know. You know, it's interesting. G.K. Chesterton, he said about Christians, he says, uh, he was talking about, all these Christians were saying that all the freedoms they had, they had and he, you know, Christians would say things like, oh, we don't have to do that, and we don't have to do this, and we don't have to do that. And G.K. Chesterton said to them, you're right, you don't have to do something unless you don't want to, and then you definitely have to. <laughs> and he said, for example, you, know, you don't have to read your Bible in public unless you don't want to, and then you definitely have to. You don't have to talk to your neighbors about Christ this week unless you don't want to. And then you definitely have to. You don't have to share Christ with your family over July 4th unless you don't want to. And then you definitely have to. What would it look like for us to just fully identify with Christ? See, I think the problem with us, the reason that we're having so many struggles in our lives is we're not all in. 
Spurgeon, that great preacher of the 1800s, he said, most Christians carry Christianity like a heavy bucket on their head. He said, they walk around, it's so heavy there, it's about to fall, they can't keep it up. He says, because it's just one or two buckets in their life they're trying to hold up. He said, but the man or the woman who dives into the ocean and swims underneath soon finds hundreds of buckets over their head. But it is no burden to them because they are fully immersed in it. What does it look like for us as a church and individually and as families to be fully immersed in identifying with Christ, not being ashamed, but being proud in public, celebrating who Christ is and what he's done for us? Let's pray. Lord, that's our prayer. We wanna be unashamed. We want to celebrate you. In a world that celebrates sin, we wanna celebrate our savior. In a world where everybody is, is posting what they're passionate about, we wanna talk about Christ. Lord, I thank you for, uh, as we study this text today, such a clear picture this morning in baptisms of six different people stepping forward and saying, I fully identify with Jesus Christ and I fully identify with his people. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.